Well, I told Billy as I walked up, but I'll tell everyone that that was a great encouragement to me, your prayers, the readings that you chose. Thank you. Niagara Falls was the site of the tightrope walk that made Charles Blondin famous. He was a French tightrope performer on a tour of the U.S. So on June 30, 1859, he crossed from America to Canada on a rope over a thousand feet long and two inches in diameter, all while descending and then ascending some 50 feet, or 60 feet of sag in the rope. He proceeded from one country to the other pretty straightforwardly in his pink tights. And then he crossed again and again and again during the summer of 1859. <clears throat> the spectators swelled after each crossing as Blondin sought to outdo his previous attempts. He walked backward on one crossing. He pushed a wheelbarrow on another. He backflipped and somersaulted his way across, once blindfolded, once at night, and once carrying a stove and utensils on his back. He set up camp, started a fire in the stove, and cooked himself an omelet. You think I'm making this up, don't you? Yeah. The crowds cheered and screamed on both shores. On completing another crossing, Blondin yelled to the crowd, do you think that I could carry one of you with me to the other side? The, the crowd cheered, of course, Blondin, you're the best. And then he called back, who's first to go with me? The cheers died down and no one came forward. This too occurs at the end of John 6. A massive crowd largely rejects the invitation of Jesus to walk with him in a close, personal relationship. From his miraculous sign of multiplying bread and fish to feed the multitudes, Jesus embarks on a discourse of hard sayings, which is what his own disciples say in verse 60, to explain that he is much more than a miracle worker seeking to draw a crowd. Jesus fills bellies once in order to illustrate that he is the bread from heaven, sent by God to give eternal life, which will truly satisfy. Our text today is where this entire conversation has been leading, the moment of decision. Throughout, Jesus has invited those who listen to depend on him through believing in his name. But will the crowd walk out on the tightrope or will they turn away? We find three responses in the chapter, and then we close with three reflections. So if you have your outline, number one, desertion. Desertion. Verse 66. <clears throat> After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, as one who calls himself a disciple... This seems to be one of the most humbling, if not painful, verses in the New Testament. Because those who were with Jesus decided to no longer remain with Jesus, so they walked away. Now in our day, 
deconstructing your faith is a popular trend on social media. Millennials and Gen Zers share their horror stories about growing up in the church on the internet. Of course, they receive validation and notoriety for rethinking their beliefs and walking away in some form. But this is not what we're dealing with in John 6. These disciples are not the first deconstructionists. Remember the timing of this event. Jesus has come and is ministering, but has not gone to the cross nor risen from the dead. And there's no formal church in existence because the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. So a disciple here in John 6 does not equal a Christian. These disciples identified in verse 66 aren't Christians. They haven't savingly trusted in Jesus and sworn allegiance to him. God's plan of salvation is still being unfolded at this point in time. Instead, they are disciples in the sense that they follow Jesus around from place to place. They're connected to Jesus enough to hear some of his teachings and see some of his miraculous signs. Jesus is inviting them to more commitment, so this is actually still a very sad event. They reject his invitation to come closer and to trust in him more personally. They quit following Jesus altogether. They consciously choose to take in no more of his teaching and see no more of his miracles. They no longer want to remain his disciples in any capacity. Jesus says over in John 8, 31, to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. So to abide is to continue, to remain. So clearly these disciples in John 6 are not genuine disciples in their hearts, but in name only. They would remain with Jesus if they were truly his disciples because Jesus also promised back in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I want you to notice the progression, though, leading up to the disciples' desertion in verse 66. We're going to walk through five steps in chapter 6. So there are five blanks on your outline. So the disciples of verse um, 60 and 66 were of this group of 5,000 plus whom Jesus fed. But the next day they wanted more bread, so they sought Jesus across the lake in which he walked over. But when they found him, they reveal, or Jesus reveals their true motive in verse 26. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. So notice first, seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted Jesus to serve them rather than be his servants. Jesus does not crumble under this popularity pressure because he tells them the truth rather than succumbing to their desires. He serves them a dish of hard sayings rather than more bread because that's what they really need. 
In contrast to the manna that fed the Israelites in the desert, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life from heaven. So notice second, grumbling. Second, grumbling. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They balk at Jesus' heavenly origin by grumbling, which we spent quite a bit of time on last week. But to summarize, grumbling is the external fruit of an unbelieving heart. They did not believe that Jesus was from heaven, so they grumbled. So then Jesus ups the ante of his statements, identifying his own flesh as the means for the world to gain life. They, are, they move from grumbling to disputing in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So notice third, disputing. <coughs> that made it worse. Um, Jesus continues this graphic language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood to make a point. Eternal life will only be yours if you depend on Jesus, needing Jesus as your very food and drink. He's pointing to the sacrifice that he will accomplish on the cross. So after admitting how hard to accept that Jesus' teaching is in verse 60, notice in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now fourth, taking offense at Jesus. Jesus knows them due to his supernatural knowledge. So he asks a question in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You grumbled about me coming from heaven. Wait until you see me go. What are you going to say then? Jesus knows that since they didn't accept him saying that he came down from heaven, that they wouldn't accept him returning to heaven via a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Jesus knows that if these people are offended by the less offensive truth, they have no chance of believing him when the more offensive thing occurs, his death, his resurrection, and then his return to heaven. So then finally, we complete our five-step progression in verse 66. So number one, they seek Jesus for the wrong reasons. Number two, they grumble because of those wrong reasons. Number three, they dispute. Number four, they're offended. And number five, desertion. They follow Jesus no more. And remember, the disciples progressed through all of these stages through a plethora of invitations from Jesus to draw closer. Verse 27, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Verse 29, believe in him whom God has sent. 35, I am the bread of life. So whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes shall never thirst. 37, whoever comes I will never cast out. 40, the will of the Father is that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 45, hear and learn from the Father. 47, whoever believes has eternal life. 51, I am the bread from heaven. Eat of me. 
53, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 54, feed on my flesh, drink my blood. 56, feed on my flesh, drink my blood. 57, feed on me. 58, feed on this bread and live forever. So many invitations. And this is the truth. The crowd rejected them all. They did not listen, but they turned away instead. So here's an example. I'm reading Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, which is very eye-opening and very convicting if you've read it. Um, Early in the book, he writes about shaping influences, which are those events and circumstances in a child's developmental years which will contribute to making him or her the person that he or she becomes. So he discusses various shaping influences on a child, like what a family values, or how a family responds to conflict or failure, how the family is structured, and so on. Now let me string about five short quotes from the book together to make the point. He writes, the person your child becomes is a product of two things. The first is his life experience, The second is how he interacts with that experience. You make a grave mistake if you conclude that child rearing is nothing more than providing the best possible shaping influences for your children. You must be concerned with providing the most stable shaping influences, yes, but you may never suppose that you are merely molding passive clay. The clay responds to shaping. It either accepts or rejects molding. Children are never passive receivers of shaping. Rather, they are active responders. So you must do all that God has called you to do as parents. But the outcome is more complex than whether you have done the right things in the right way. Your children are responsible for the way they respond to your parenting. Your child's heart determines how he responds to your parenting. So, despite giving these disciples exactly what they truly need to hear, in the manner they need to hear it, from the lips of the perfect Son of God, who never misspoke, and who never spoke with the wrong tone, and who never focused on behavior rather than the heart. These disciples deserted Jesus and the life he offered. They may have followed Jesus around for a while, but their hearts were far from him. So parents, maybe you can find some solace here if your grown kids have turned away from you or from their faith. They are responsible for their decisions, just like these disciples are responsible for deserting Jesus. But oh, how powerful is God's Spirit. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus explains in verses 63 through 65, the crowd's actions in verse 66 before it happens. The Spirit gives life. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, starting in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus must be born again. He needs a new heart and a new life. Why? Because that which is of the Spirit of God and which is of the flesh of man are diametrically opposed to each other. The flesh is no help at all, says Jesus, in spiritual matters. And not just Nicodemus, but all of us. We are of the flesh, separated from God's Spirit in our natural state. Even from our mother's wombs, we were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, David writes in Psalm 51. Now, John Piper, commenting on this, makes a good point. Flesh, including the human brain, may be amazing. It can create computers, find remedies for diseases, and send land rovers to Mars, but it cannot grasp the beauty of Christ or gladly submit to God's word. In that sense, none of us had life. Now, some of my favorite verses are in Titus chapter 3. Paul writes, starting in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, that's us in our flesh, our human condition. Each of us needs the Spirit. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, because clearly we were not righteous, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All of this, a work of God. The Father poured out the Holy Spirit who washes, regenerates, and renews to give us the very life of Jesus that He refers to over and over again in John 6. Verse 64 and 65. But there are some of you who did not believe. For Jesus knew who from the beginning, those who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, Jesus has the words of spirit and life. He spoke them and they hung out there in the air. The disciples needed to just reach out and grab his words and believe in them. But instead, his words fell to the ground and they turned away from him. The Spirit did not give them life. Their flesh was of no help to them. The Father did not grant their coming. Last week, I described these twin truths as an iceberg with a part above the water that can be seen and a part below the water that cannot be seen. Above the water, we witness in our experience, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, that's part of the iceberg that we can see. 
But Jesus reveals spiritual matters that God fully understands going under the surface of the water that we will never see or fully understand. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So I think it's faithful to the Bible for me to say that these people deserted Jesus because they did not believe. And these people were not granted by the Father to come to Jesus. Jesus knew who from the beginning would believe in him and who would not believe in him. Yet he spoke his spirit and life invitations to all of them indiscriminately. And some did come. Some were granted by the Father. So the next response is your next blank. Number two, faith. Faith. Jesus issues a challenge in verse 67 to the 12, asking, do you want to go away as well? According to D.A. Carson, it's actually worded like, surely you don't want to go away too, do you? He's challenging them by asking a question more for their own sake so that they could articulate a response in this critical moment. So imagine the scene. According to verse 59, uh, they are in the synagogue at Capernaum at this point. Jesus teaches those that followed him, but his words land like bricks on the floor. In what was maybe a full audience, one or two stand up to leave. Then it becomes several, and then bunches of people. Jesus continues conversing, yet the doors rattle more and more as more people exit, and the dialogue dies out. Who remains? Maybe just the 12, his closest followers. So Jesus asked the question, do you want to go away as well? As his words kind of echo around the now empty room. But Simon Peter stands up as the spokesman for the group, and he responds with one of the greatest testimonies of faith in the New Testament. It's especially strong because there is pressure on all of us to go with the crowd, to support the winning team. Yet at the time that Jesus' support withered, Peter verbalizes his faith. Verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. With what he said, Peter shows that he believed Jesus' words are spirit and life, which is what Jesus said in verse 63. Peter may not understand all of what Jesus was saying at this point, but he believes it's true. Peter is a Jew, just like the crowd who grumbled about Jesus. They grumbled in verse 41 because Jesus said he was from heaven. They did not believe but Peter believed. They then disputed with Jesus in verse 52 because Jesus pointed to his future death, that they should depend on his flesh and blood. There were clear Old Testament commands to avoid eating the blood of an animal. So they disputed, but Peter believed 
and knew that Jesus is the Holy One of God. This is an incredible declaration. But Peter can take no credit or feel self-important because of what Jesus says in verse 70. As the chapter ends on a foreboding note, verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So your third response. Number three, deception. In a sermon I listened to, Alistair Begg made a great point. He said, at least the crowd that rejected Jesus was honest, but one amongst those remaining is a concealing fraud. Jesus knew that one day soon Judas's name would become synonymous with traitor. Jesus here identifies Jews, Judas as opposing him just as Satan does. Judas is already aligned with the devil that will one day possess him. My mentor from seminary, uh, Dr. Cook, wrote, if one of Jesus' closest followers will betray him, we should not be shocked in our day to see those who appear to be disciples of Jesus abandon him. Judas saw Jesus' signs, heard his sermons, traveled with him for a couple of years, got to know him in a way that few others did, and yet in the end, betrayed him. There could be a stumbling block here for us. Judas is highlighted as an example of one who did not believe but betrayed instead, all while the multitude of these disciples turn away and follow Jesus no more. They will remain in their unbelief, verse 65 says, unless it is granted by the Father for them to come. Peter was granted by the Father to come. Most in the crowd and Judas were not. Three reflections to close. The first one. When you come across a hard saying in the Bible, it's not God who needs to conform, but you. Now, these are hard points, and this is a hard message to preach. So believe me, I know there are hard truths in the Bible when, when we read, but this may be a helpful way to look at it. Hard truths in the Bible have a way of revealing whom your Lord is. Hard truths in the Bible have a way of revealing who your Lord is. Maybe you decide there's errors and contradictions in the Bible after reading some hard truths. Or you become combative, arguing for your interpretation of some doctrine and causing division with others over some hard truths. Or maybe you find them too hard to accept, so you walk away. Or you find another church or another teacher that will better fit your vision of Jesus. These are all examples of rejecting God's lordship over you and determining that you will be your own Lord. This is the path of the crowd and of Judas. 
True disciples are those who remain, who have a humble disposition. They may come across a hard saying in the Bible and they may be taken aback, even somewhat offended or angry as they question God. On the surface, truly, true disciples may respond in similar ways that will be found out later uh, of those who are false disciples. But what eventually will be revealed is either humility of heart or no humility. A true disciple reads the Bible to conform to God, not God to conform to his or her expectations of goodness and fairness. Consider hard sayings by chewing on them, praying about them, talk with trusted people and share your concerns, and continue to read God's word. Because here in John 6, there is a clear contrast between Peter's testimony of faith and Judas's future betrayal. But fast forward to John 18. Both betray Jesus. Judas leads a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus after taking a bribe, and Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. A true disciple is not perfect, but he or she is the one willing to conform. A true disciple remains because they trust in their heart that Jesus has the words of eternal life, even if what Jesus says is hard to hear, hard to understand, or hard to accept. What we need is humility, a settled determination that Jesus is our Lord. When you read the Bible, the question is, who's going to conform? You or God? Second, pray for the Spirit to give life. The flesh is no help at all. You and I cannot save ourselves in this born-again way that Jesus speaks of. We are more dependent on God every moment of every day than we could even imagine. And yet, how much more so for our eternal destiny? I have heard it said that the only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is our sin. And all three persons of the Godhead work together to overcome your sin and spiritual death. John 6 makes clear that the Father draws people to salvation. The Son achieves salvation by living without sin, by dying for sins and rising to defeat sin. And the Spirit applies that salvation to those that the Father draws. The Spirit gives eternal life. When you pray for God to save someone, you're praying to the three persons in one God united in the mission to save sinners and to the only one who has the very ability to do what you're praying for. Your time spent in prayer for sinners to be saved is time well spent because your prayers and your words of evangelism are the very means that God has determined to use to save sinners. What a joy it must bring God in heaven to hear prayers from his people on behalf of those who are not his people. What a joy it must bring God in heaven to see his people telling those who are not his people about Jesus. If we really believe that the Spirit gives life through our efforts of prayer and words of evangelism, that God has people out there 
waiting to come through our obedience? Why are there so few prayers and so little evangelism? Such deep theology in this chapter should bring us to pray and share. The Spirit gives life to those still in their sinful flesh. Now, moving to the third reflection, I believe in the reliability of the New Testament and the Old Testament, at least in part because of the sheer volume of rejection it reports. If I were trying to create a following, I would not have written John 6 the way that it appears in our Bibles because Jesus was rejected thousands upon thousands of times by almost all of whom ate his bread and fish. But not only the crowd, there's Judas. I read a John Piper sermon this week and he asked a good question. Why did Jesus bring up Judas the betrayer? And why did John write about Judas in his added commentary? Like the second part of verse 64 in verse 71. Why did John add that about Judas? Because Judas has nothing in particular to do with the story other than that he was there. But so was James or Thomas or John. And they weren't mentioned by name. Uh, But Piper makes an interesting conclusion. With mentioning Judas and all the rejection, it looks like the devil is winning. Thousands reject Jesus. And there's even a betrayer amongst his inner circle. Clearly the devil is winning in John 6. And how often does it look like the devil is winning among us too? We have enough difficulties or sorrows or sicknesses and effects of sin among us to even make the most faithful of us question, is the devil winning? But the answer to the question from this chapter is a clear no. The devil is not winning. After Peter's testimony of faith, Jesus says in verse 70, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus put him there. Judas is right where he is supposed to be. Jesus chose all the 12 to follow him. And there's a devil in the ranks. But Judas is not in charge. Neither's the devil. Jesus is in charge. And the devil is not winning in our day either. Even as we struggle with broken relationships, or debilitating diseases, unbelief in our children, vile cells multiplying in our bodies, the devil is not and will not win. Jesus is in charge. So number three, rest that God is in charge. This has not been an upbeat message, but I pray that you will receive Jesus with a humble heart, seeking to conform to him. Where many have stumbled, I pray instead that you will find rest and comfort that God is in control of this turbulent world. May we say with Peter, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Walk out on that tightrope with Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for allowing us to study it and read it and even have it. Because we know that contained within your words is the ministry of Jesus and we know that he has the words of eternal life. All things may pass away, but never the word. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us as we navigate the world, which is hostile to you, but we pray that we would look upon you afresh in faith, knowing that you are in control. I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Demonstrate your control of all things through us as we pray and as we share. And I pray, Father, that we could even see a little bit of the fruit, that you are still saving sinners, that you're still drawing people to yourself, and that Jesus still has the words of eternal life. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your salvation that is available to all people today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.